<laughs> Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. This is Austin. And this is Amy. Uh, we have some really great content. I think Rue 3 is going to be my favorite podcast, so uh, stay tuned for that. I do want to warn you that the scripture we reference and the content we talk about could be triggering to some people. In this podcast, we talk about sex and purity culture and systems that lead to the sexual exploitation of women. If you think that you might be triggered by this, please pause this at any time or feel free not to listen to this podcast until you are in a safe space when you feel safe to engage with this content. But right now, we're just going to have the creative team do a dramatic reading, and we will see you at the other side. A scandalous nighttime rendezvous. We have seen this scene a thousand times in movies. But take a second and a third look. The story might not be as black and white as you think, and what happens in private is not so easily understood in public. Just like the voice of God, our motivations are often hidden and unexplained. What are the scenes and decisions that we might not be seeing? Write these down as you listen to how our story continues. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I need to seek some security for you so that it may be well with you. Now here is our kingsman Boaz, with whose young woman you have been working. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, wash and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. She said to her, All that you tell me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had instructed her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk, and he was in a contented mood, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came stealthily and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and there, lying at his feet, was a woman. He said, Who, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over your servant, for you are next of kin. He said, ah. May you be blessed by Yahweh, my daughter. This last instance, though you just said, is better than the first. You have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. 
I will do for you all that you ask. For all the assembly of my people know that you are a worthy woman. But now, though it is true that I am a near kinsman, there is another kinsman more closely related than I. Remain this night, and in the morning, if he will act as next of kin for you, good, let him do it. If he is not willing to act as next of kin for you, then, as Yahweh lives, I will act as next of kin for you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before one person could recognize another, for he said, It must not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Then he said, Bring the cloak you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her back. Then he went into the city. She came to her mother-in-law, who said, How did things go with you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, He gave me these six measures of barley, for he said, Do not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Thank you so much, creative team, and welcome back, Ruth Connors, to podcast number three on Ruth 3. Um, some of you maybe have heard of the stories in Genesis 19 and 38 with Lot's widow daughters and the widow Tamar. And you're probably wondering, how does this fit in all together with Ruth? And in actuality, the stories in Genesis add a lot of context and layers to Ruth, especially as we head into chapter three. However, to give a brief synopsis in Genesis 19, this is where Lot and his daughters are fleeing Sodom as it's getting destroyed by God. And as they escape, they escape into the hills, which is very far away from civilization. And so Lot's daughters find themselves in the situation where they are concerned about their solitude and the possibility of preserving humanity as their whole town is destroyed. There's no more men left for them. And so they scheme up to get their father drunk and have sex with him with the goal of getting pregnant. Whereas in Genesis 38, we have the widow Tamar, um, who becomes widowed because her husband was killed by God due to his wickedness. And by way of Leverite marriage, um, her father-in-law, Judah, asks the second son, Onan, to provide an offspring for Tamar, but he abuses her, and so Onan, too, dies. And so Judah is reluctant to give Tamar his youngest son, Shelah, in order that she doesn't remain destitute. And so 
Tamar dresses up as a prostitute and has sexual relations with Judah and becomes pregnant with twins, Perez and Zerah. What both these stories have in common is that there are women taking the matter of their future and security into their own hands when their family members have failed in their responsibilities towards them. With this all in mind, we now find ourselves back into Ruth 3, with Naomi scheming to have the outsider Ruth married to Boaz. Perhaps in our modern lenses, we can read this and not like a mother-in-law planning out for her daughter-in-law's life. Rather, what the first hearers of this text would have understood is Naomi's actions in her bold initiatives to have children, much like the boldness exemplified by the widow daughters of Lot and the widow Tamar. Because back then, there was no security net for women. It was through the security and future of being part of a family and a community that was their options. However, as we approach the text, there are also differences in Ruth when compared to Lot's daughters and Tamar's story. While Naomi's plan, like Lot's daughters, involved alcohol, while Lot was drunk, Boaz was self-aware and conscious on the threshing floor where Naomi's plan included solicitation. But unlike Tamar, who tricked her father-in-law, Ruth does not trick Boaz, and Boaz is much more responsible in caring for Ruth when, by law, it wasn't required for him. This wasn't the case in Judah's story, who was deliberately not wanting to fulfill his responsibilities in giving Sheila to Tamar in order that she might have a child. Yeah, thank you, Amy. I feel like we need to understand uh, the context and history of vulnerable women to understand this plan that Naomi has. So let's talk about this plan. Naomi's first attempt to gain Ruth's security seemed pretty good. I think it was rooted in her grief and experience, but sending Ruth back to her family and country to find a husband and get married would make a lot of sense. But in that instance, the author keeps the reader off balance with the choices that the characters make. Ruth pushes back against this first plan, defying many cultural expectations of of honoring your elders, um, but seems to agree without hesitation to this plan, which is unconventional. But the fact is that these women are still vulnerable. They don't have a lot of options. Catherine Dube Sackenfield tells us that where options are limited, people take advantage of whatever possibilities are available and pray that God will see them through. When you have privilege and systems that protect your security, it is much easier to not take risks. But when you are vulnerable, there are often no other options than to take risks. The story of Tamar and Judah is a prime example. So here is Naomi's plan. Changing clothes, um, bathing, and anointing. These actions are increasingly rare for this time. Changing clothes might happen once every few days, bathing maybe once a week or more, and anointing is a really rare occurrence. So Naomi is wanting Ruth to look and smell good. Boaz is going to be sleeping at the threshing floor to protect his crop, so he would be there alone. Why uncover his feet? Well, in Hebrew, the word feet was sometimes used as a euphemism for genitals. 
And on top of that, the word uncover is often used in reference to sexual relations, specifically the phrase uncover their nakedness, which basically means to have sex with. Uh, in addition to that, the term lie down could refer to going to sleep or sleeping with slash having sex with. You can find reference to this language in Genesis 9, Exodus 20, and Leviticus 18. So the more that I learned about this, the higher my eyebrows went as I internally asked the question, okay, Naomi, what are you asking Ruth to do? It's ambiguous what Naomi is asking. Um, this is not normal, but it's very intentional. The original hearers or readers of this story would be feeling this tension. What will happen? The characters in this story seem to be making unpredictable choices, so we're on the edge of our seat waiting to hear. The author had every ability to clearly say whether they did or did not have sex, Ruth and Boaz, but the author chooses not to. The author uses language that is intentionally ambiguous to build this tension in the story. Mm. And again, we need to remember the state that Ruth is in. She has no long-term security or protection, and Naomi wants to get that for her. Similarly, Naomi has no security, and Ruth wants to secure that for Naomi, and a marriage to one of her wealthy kinsmen could do that. While up until now, Boaz has provided generously for their temporary security, but it seems that he nor anyone else has come forward to provide security in the way that this culture did through a marriage. Naomi's plan is risky and also a little risque, and I think it is meant to provoke this response from Boaz. She might not be sure what he will do, but she believes that through this encounter, something will happen. He will tell you what to do is her last statement to Ruth. So what happens? With all of this ambiguous sexual language being used, do they have sex? I don't think so. And I have a few reasons why I think that. First, it doesn't say that they do. There are enough stories in scripture that are honest about the mistakes that people make. So I don't think there's enough evidence to suggest that they did have sex because it doesn't tell us it that way. Number two, um, Ruth and Naomi's goal is to secure a marriage and the ongoing security that that would provide. And Boaz responds with this declaration to see that happen, even if it's not him the one, like being the one to provide that. Given what we know of Boaz's character up until this point, it seems highly unlikely that he would knowingly jeopardize Ruth if the other kinsmen chose to marry her. And three, chapter four tells us that they got married, had sex, conceived a baby, and gave birth to a son. The order of those events suggests that here at the threshing floor was not a sexual encounter. But something does happen. Boaz wakes up in some level of undress to find Ruth at his feet. Ruth says, spread the corner of your garment over me because you are our guardian redeemer. This statement that Ruth makes is full of good stuff. First, spread your garment over me is basically a marriage proposal. It suggests a marriage bond. You can look at Ezekiel 16.8 for the exact same language. 
And remember, marriage was Naomi's primary goal. But we don't see this proposal as part of the instructions given to Ruth. Naomi actually tells Ruth to let Boaz take the lead. But again, we see Ruth boldly speaking on her own. And not only is this spread the corner of your garment, a marriage proposal, but the word garment is the same word for wing in the Hebrew. And if you remember back to Ruth 2, you see Boaz bless Ruth by saying, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And similar to the way that Boaz provides food and protection as an expression of being under the Lord's wings, Ruth uses this language to say, This too is a way that you can express the reward under the Lord's wings of refuge. You can marry me and I will be under your garment, your wing, and that of the Lord that you serve. Ruth is proposing marriage and the reason that she gives to Boaz is that he is a guardian redeemer. This redeemer is the close relative, the word Gaal that Amy talked to us about in Ruth 2. She names this closeness of relationship because that highlights Boaz's relationship to Naomi. You are a redeemer of our family. Ruth continues to tie herself to Naomi and is asking Boaz to step up and care for both of their needs. And Boaz's response is to praise Ruth for this act of loyalty, this chesed, which is the word that we've already talked about. This act of loyalty to Naomi is even greater than the first one when she left Moab and left her people to come with Naomi. It seems that Boaz is suggesting that Ruth could have married someone younger and more appealing, but that might not have guaranteed Naomi security. So she follows through with Naomi's plan because she recognizes that it will also provide for her. Now, I feel like when I heard this story of Ruth um, before and growing up, it was framed in this romantic encounter in the field where Ruth and Boaz have lunch together and they're throwing these blushing glances at each other while Ruth gleams. Amy, have you had uh, any kind of similar experience? Oh, yeah, I agree. I think in my own history, I've heard people interpret Ruth has this like amazing love story and that women need to find a man just like Boaz to marry. But I think one thing about this interpretation is that it does a disservice in what the book of Ruth is trying to tell us about his head and just other really wonderful truths. But also when we get to the part of the threshing floor, if we read this as a love story, when Ruth goes to meet Boaz in a potentially dangerous scenario, where in other circumstances she could have been taken advantage of, or as Austin mentioned, it's kind of manipulative with how it's forcing Boaz to do something, I think we kind of need to reconsider how we interpret Ruth as a love story because this doesn't really sound like one. Yeah, totally. And and Ruth isn't doing this because of her internal romantic infatuation with Boaz. This isn't the full expression of the crush that she's had on him for months. Boaz is just this older cousin figure with at least like a 15-year age gap between him and Ruth. And her actions are for the sake of a marriage to provide security for herself and Naomi. 
This is totally a story about love, but way more about Ruth's love for Naomi than Ruth's love for Boaz or vice versa. And even though I'm a hopeless romantic, I actually really love this love story. It's complex, it's complicated, but it actually shows a side of love that I didn't actually know was there when I heard of Ruth before. In this encounter at the threshing floor, Boaz agrees to marry Ruth um, only if this closer relative doesn't. Um, He tells her that he is next in line. And so we'll talk more about that in a bit and we'll look at it more in chapter four. But another tension that we have from this encounter at the threshing floor is Boaz's statement, it must not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. Why all this secrecy? Boaz knew what was happening. He praised Ruth for this act of loyalty, this chesed. He didn't condemn Ruth for coming to the threshing floor in this way. Later, we'll see that God blesses their marriage, so it would seem that God wasn't upset at how this encounter played out either. And like Amy was saying, unlike our story about Judah, Boaz didn't make Ruth vulnerable, nor does he take advantage of her when he easily could have. And like Tamar, Ruth is bold in her approach towards Boaz, but unlike the secrecy surrounding Tamar getting pregnant through Judah, Ruth is upfront with Boaz in her need. So while this plan and encounter appear to be risky and unconventional, it seems like they did everything in a good way. So why does it need to be a secret from the community? Well, sometimes the way that things appear is enough to jeopardize and condemn people. I think Boaz recognizes that there is some danger in this encounter, and he is either protecting himself and his image, or he's protecting Ruth. But my guess is that he's protecting Ruth. Boaz, if we remember, is a wealthy and respected man, and from our look at the story of Judah and Tamar and all over scripture, men are rarely held to account over their sexual choices, despite the fact that it is in the law that God gave to the Israelites. In fact, one of the only times men are consistently held responsible for their sexual choices is if they sleep with another man's wife, and even then, It's mostly because he offends the other man, not because of the impropriety with this wife. And so oftentimes it's actually God is the only one who directly holds men accountable for their sexual choices when the community and the culture fail to do so. But from our same story of Tamar and Judah, Tamar is sentenced to being burned to death because she got pregnant outside of Judah's blessing. This is not the only time that women are held to account for their sexual choices in ways that men are not. And so I think Boaz is aware of all of these things and he is protecting not only Ruth's chance at getting married to the other kinsmen, I think he's protecting her life. Because if it becomes public knowledge that she was there with him, her chances of finding security and her life could be in danger. Now, 
I'm glad that Boaz uses his power and his privilege to protect Ruth. But the more that I think about this, the more I get upset at the reasons why he had to. The Israelites live in a patriarchal culture which privileges and protects men over women. But that doesn't mean that it was right or good. Now, I would strongly argue that we still live in a patriarchal system in Canada. I would also argue that the majority of the church still holds to the values of that system. A system that continuously gives power to men, the result of which often makes women vulnerable. I want to pause in our story for a second and talk about one of the harmful products of the system of patriarchy, which is purity culture. Now, purity culture is a value set driven by patriarchy by which the ultimate goal is to keep people sexually abstinent unless they are married. Now, this is a value shared by the vast majority of the Christian church, but this movement of purity culture puts such a strong emphasis on abstinence that it creates some very unhealthy messages about relationships, about dating, about sex, and about marriage. Some of these messages include setting up very strict boundaries between boys and girls of all ages so that there wouldn't be any temptation to become sexually active before getting married. It also suggests that if you have sex before you are married, you are no longer pure. Parents and church leaders have used this as a scare tactic sometimes to say that if you had sex before you were married, it will ruin your chance of getting married or it will have this significantly negative impact on your marriage going forward. And most of this, these messages are targeted at young women. There are phrases like, no boy will want you if you're not a virgin. Terms like, you will be spoiled or damaged goods these harmful messages that have been portrayed. Girls were told to dress modestly, to cover your bodies so that you won't cause temptation for the boys around you. The implication is that boys had this higher sex drive that they had no way to control, and the only way to do that was to remove the temptation of these girls. This leads to the shaming and policing of women's bodies, shaming and policing their actions and their choices. And additionally, it villainizes any sexual desires that women have until they are married, at which point they are supposed to do a full turn and satisfy their husbands. They are to be this outlet for their husband's sexual urges, regardless of any uh, pleasure that they might experience. And purity culture also affects men. It tells men that we need to control these sexual urges that seemingly can't be controlled, thus leading men into cycles of fatalism and shame when they masturbate or look at pornography. It turns men into self-righteous jerks who are citizens on patrol versions of those who police women's bodies. Purity culture leads to narratives of rape culture that say that girl was asking for it because she dressed in a certain way. Can you believe that? Blaming women and girls for being abused. Meanwhile, boys are not told to cover their bodies and they are taught to fear or to objectify women's bodies rather than respect them. 
This is men having power and not being held to account for their sexual choices while women who make the same choices have their safety threatened. Does this sound familiar? Maybe a certain midnight rendezvous between a foreign widow and a man at a threshing floor? Or maybe this sounds familiar because you've been told this narrative yourself. Now, I want to acknowledge that as a heterosexual man, I have limitations in understanding many people's experience, and I apologize if my explanation of purity culture does not fully capture the nuance of this topic for you or people that you care about. I can't even imagine the level of damage that purity culture has had on anybody who's part of the LGBTQ community, especially within the church, but also outside of it. When the purity culture narrative doesn't make room for the experience of heterosexual women, how much more shame has been placed on our friends in the LGBTQ community? The church has been at war with the sexual revolution since the 60s, and campaigning against the violence done to marriage and family by this liberal sexual culture, but the church has taken no responsibility for the violence that has been done by them. By us. Now, I want to be clear and say that I believe that there is something special about sharing a unique sexual relationship with one person in the safety of marriage. Mm. There is a beauty and an intimacy that I truly believe God designed to be healing and joyful and uniting. But no person enters a marriage pure. Every person alive is in need of healing when it comes to our identity. And while our experience of gender and sexuality is part of who we are, it does not define us in the way the culture tells us it does. Dating and relationships, whether they're sexual or platonic, are complicated and messy. And God wants to be a part of the process of healing through all of those. And while it might seem like that has some overlap with the message of purity culture, I firmly refute that God would be in support of the messages uh, that purity culture tells. Having sex before you are married does not taint you or make you unworthy of love. It does not make you damaged goods, and it is not a bigger sin. There are unique consequences that can result from sexual relationships outside of marriage. But those do not condemn you forever, nor do they merit the ongoing shame and violence that continues to be used against people who have sex outside of heterosexual marriages. God will still be there, right there for you, and longs to talk to you about what you are going through, regardless of if you meet the standards of purity culture or if you don't. Like we see with the land of Israel and its people, The God that created you is full of love and compassion and longs to satisfy you in the places of your identity that feel empty or hurting. Amen. I want us to take a look at Boaz here. Boaz is a wealthy man who is respected in his community. He has significant power and privilege in this situation, and he uses it to protect the person who is most vulnerable. He already did it when Ruth was gleaning in the field. He made it explicitly clear to the young men, do not bother her. 
those young men were already legally and religiously required not to harass this woman, but Boaz made it explicitly clear that that was not okay because the culture wouldn't have held them accountable. But Boaz puts himself in the place of holding them accountable. And every place that Boaz has power, he uses it to protect the most vulnerable. So I want to ask each of you, where do you have power? Where do you have influence? Where do you have protection of a system that others don't? Is it your wealth and your economic background? Is it your race? Is it your cultural background? Is it your amount of education? Do you have influence in your church or your campus fellowship, your workplace, or your family or your friend group? Who is vulnerable? Who is shamed, blamed, and at risk in those spaces? Boaz sees Naomi and Ruth's position and he responds actively. I invite you to do the same. I want to see an end to the violence done to women. I want to see the system of patriarchy and all of the values that flow from it crumble because I believe that intentionally or unintentionally, it leads to violence. And intentions don't really matter when people are being raped and killed. We all have a part to play in this. We all need to change this culture together. We all need to challenge the unhealthy narratives of shame. We all need to use our power to protect the vulnerable. Now, straight men, I want to talk to you for a second, because we are the ones who are protected by the patriarchy the most and have the most power. So we need to use that to protect others who are vulnerable while actively fighting against the narratives that make them vulnerable in the first place. We need to talk less and listen more. We need to believe women when they tell us about the violence done to them. And in the name of Jesus, we need to stop blaming women for that violence. It is not their fault. Ladies, it is not your fault. We all, men and women, need to learn to leave behind the black and white simple answers of good and bad, should or shouldn't, and enter into the nuance and the tension of sexuality and relationships. We also need to do it together. Sexuality is so much more than who we are attracted to or who we have sex with. It's about all of our relationships and how we relate to people around us. It can't be done in isolation. Now, this has been made an unsafe thing to talk about, but the answer is not to do it by yourself. It's about safe community. And that being said, it's risky to bring community into this conversation because you will be vulnerable. Ruth and Naomi take a huge risk in bringing Boaz into the vulnerability of their situation. But they also had three months of experience of Boaz showing up and using his power to protect them. Um, so it helped them choose into that risk knowing who Boaz was. So find some safe people who uh, you can start to talk about this with. If this is something that you have feeling, felt impacted by, I would encourage you to find people around you that you trust to start the journey of healing from these harmful narratives now, regardless of your gender or sexual orientation or your relationship status. 
If you are not sure where to start, you can sign up for prayer ministry, and we have some staff who would love to help you hear from Jesus. And before moving back into our story, um, I'm just going to pause and I'm going to pray for all of us right now. Lord God, you created us in your image. Man and woman, you created us. You created us for relationship and intimacy like you are in intimacy in relationship with yourself, God. God, I confess that intimacy and relationships have been damaged. I confess on behalf of the church and those who follow you for the damage and violence that has been done to people's bodies and to people's hearts. Jesus, I don't feel like I have a sufficient answer for my friends who experience gender and sexuality outside of the binaries that we see in scripture, but God, I believe you do have answers for them. God, I ask for your forgiveness for the way that we have harmed people, especially women and those who do not experience gender and sexuality in a heteronormative way. God, you know each person intimately. You understand their experience more than I ever can. So please, in your mercy, heal all of my friends listening to this right now. Heal them from the damage and the violence that have harmed them. Heal them from the unhealthy narratives. Holy Spirit, would you reveal to us the places where we have power and where we can use it to protect those who are vulnerable? Holy Spirit, come and surround every person with your presence and create a safe space for them to hear the truth about who you have made them to be. And God, I pray that you listen attentively to the hurt and the pain, the anger and the frustration, and that you help each person grieve well. God, would you weep with them and hold their emotions? God, I pray that you would speak your love and affirmation over each person and give each per person the promise to walk with them in the journey of healing. And God, I pray that you send family and friends who are safe people to walk alongside them in this journey of healing. I ask for your redemption of each of our stories and that you would fill each of us to overflowing joy at the knowledge of who you created us to be. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Austin, for such really excellent truth. I think we all kind of need to hear. But now I feel that we need to transition us as, as much as I want to stop and just say it in the goodness that you've shared. There are other things in this text that Ruth brings up that I think it is going to be important for us to know. And so one of them is Leverite marriage. We've mentioned this at the beginning of this podcast, and maybe some of you are wondering, what is this? And basically, a Leverite marriage was for the protection of a young widow who was childless. Basically, um, a widow in her position would have no security of a husband or children, which would cause them to be destitute and isolated from their community. Thus, the Leverite marriage was placed in order to protect them, where the widow's brother-in-law would marry her and help her have children. Although Boaz is a close relative of Naomi's husband, and he is described as their guardian redeemer, neither the Levite marriage nor the redemption laws described in the Old Testament present any legal obligation for Boaz to marry Ruth. To add to this, Ruth being a Moabite would be a major block 
to her marriage to any Israelite. And yet, despite all of this, when Ruth asks Boaz to spread the corner or the wing, as Austin shared with us, of his garment over her, Boaz responds positively to her proposal. By agreeing to marry Ruth, Boaz is also able to extend his generosity and his said to Naomi, of whom he would also care for as part of his extended family. Finally, we see in Ruth the beauty of God's people to be willing agents in structures of power to take upon themselves the responsibility to transform their hopeless situations. But they did this all while trusting God. What Ruth exhorts us as individuals and as a church is to be willing and bold agents of transformation in our present context, which will look different for each and every one of us. But simply standing inside and watching passively as people suffer is simply something God's people don't do. And so I ask Austin, do you mind praying for us to close this time? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, again, Jesus, um, yeah, would you help us to see to see the people around us? Would you help us to have your eyes to see people who are vulnerable? God, would you help us have eyes that understand our own context and how we fit into it? Um, and God, we we just pray that you would you would reveal those those places to us that you would speak to us out of out of Ruth three. Yeah, and that you would help us to be a part of a community that that is healing and protecting. So God, would you go with each of our friends here? Amen. Thanks for listening. I pray there's been some good truths and good revelations for you to think and discuss with your small groups. So we bless you and we'll see you at the next podcast. Bye.